This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, March 24th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Doug Blair. President Biden, Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson has come under fire for her positions on child porn sentencing, court stacking, and immigration. But one less known concern about the judge's history are her positions on labor. CEO of Americans for Fair Treatment, David Osborne, joins the show to discuss those concerns and what it could mean if she's confirmed to the court. But before we get to Doug's interview, let's hit our top news stories of today. Wednesday marked the third day of confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. During Wednesday's hearing, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, got into a heated discussion with Jackson over sentencing standards for child sex offenders. Here's some of that exchange via Fox News. Senator, with respect to the computer, one of the most effective deterrents is one that I imposed in every case and that Judges across the country impose in every case, which is substantial, substantial supervision. Any of these defendants... Wait, 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 Judge. You think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail? No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. I think the best way to deter people from getting on a computer and viewing thousands and hundreds and over time, maybe millions, the population as a whole, of children being exploited and abused every time somebody clicks on is to put their ass in jail, not supervise their computer usage. Senator, I wasn't talking about um, versus. You just said you thought it was a deterrent to supervise them. I don't think it's a deterrent. I think the deterrent is putting them in jail. The sentencing have a deterrent component. Senator, would you let her respond? Yes. Graham also grilled Jackson on her judgment during a case involving immigration. So this is an example to me, and you may not agree, where the plain language of the statute was completely wiped out by you. You reached a conclusion because you disagreed with the Trump administration, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, as I've quoted just a minute ago, there could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent to leave the decision about the scope of expedited removal within the statutory bounds to the Secretary's independent judgment. That, to me, is Exhibit A of activism. Finally, Graham asked Jackson if she'd watched the hearings for Justice Brett Kavanaugh and how she would feel if she were treated the same way Democrats treated him. Did you watch the Kavanaugh hearings? No, sir. Are you familiar with what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings? Generally. Senator, your time is... Well, please, Mr. Chairman. Uh, So, to be honest, it's a minute and 47 seconds. She filibustered every question I had, and she has a right to give an answer. But I'm trying to make a point in 20 minutes. You were here for Kavanaugh. If she's confused about what happened, some people on the other side had an accusation against Judge Kavanaugh that during high school, uh, he sexually assaulted somebody. And the rest is history. That was known to the people on the other side and never revealed during the meetings they had with Judge Kavanaugh. It was literally ambushed. He was ambushed. How would you feel if we did that to you? The last day of confirmation hearings are today. 
Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell criticized Jackson for her comments about court packing. Here's what McConnell had to say on the Senate floor Wednesday via his Twitter account. The far-left fringe groups that promoted Judge Jackson for this vacancy want Democrats to destroy the court's legitimacy through partisan court packing or unconstitutional term limits. She was literally the court packer's pick for the seat, and she has repeatedly refused to reject their position. Both the liberal legal giants, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, had no problem, no problem, defending the court and denouncing court packing. Both Ginsburg and Breyer denounced court packing. As sitting justices, they commented freely on the subject. The justices knew that expressing a clear view and defending their institution was not, I repeat, not judicially inappropriate in any way. But Judge Jackson has refused to follow in the footsteps of Ginsburg and Breyer. She refuses to rule out what the radical activists want. The leftist group Demand Justice has advocated for Jackson to be a Supreme Court nominee and is now making ad buys in support of her. On their website, Demand Justice states, With a 6-3 Republican supermajority, the Supreme Court is too biased in favor of special interests and Republican politicians. Our democracy is at risk from decisions that suppress the right to vote. Adding four seats is the solution, and we need your help to get it done. Congress can change the number of justices on the court at any time with a simple piece of legislation, and it has done so many times throughout American history. On Tuesday, the Oklahoma State House passed a bill banning all medically unnecessary abortions in the state. The legislation is similar to a bill passed recently in Texas and would rely on individual citizens to file lawsuits against anyone performing, aiding, or attending to assist a medically unnecessary abortion. Per the Washington Examiner, plaintiffs can receive at least $10,000 for each abortion performed by a defendant or that they assisted in. Abortions performed to save the life of the mother would still be protected. The bill is currently on its way to the Oklahoma State Senate. Madeleine Albright, who served as Secretary of State for President Bill Clinton, died Wednesday. She was 84. Prior to becoming Secretary of State, Albright served as ambassador to the United Nations, also in the Clinton administration. She was born in the former Czechoslovakia and came to the U.S. as a refugee in 1948 after communists took control of Czechoslovakia. Her family's statement said that she died of cancer. Now stay tuned for my conversation with David Osborne as we discuss Katanji Brown-Jackson and public sector unions. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear lectures from some of the biggest names in American politics? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These events are free and open to the public. To find the latest Heritage events and to register, visit heritage.org events. My guest today is David Osborne, CEO of Americans for Fair Treatment, a national nonprofit that works to educate public sector employees about their constitutional rights around union membership. 
David, welcome to the show. Well done, Doug. Thanks. <laughs> Very much appreciate your, your coming here. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the kind of top news story right now, which is President Biden's potential nominee to the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. You've stated about Ketanji Brown herself that she's a bit of a problem. You say, I can't think of a judge who's done more for public sector unions in the relatively short period of time that KBJ, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, has been on the bench. Of course, Biden selected someone that unions favored. He owes it to them. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, we're here talking about the nation's most powerful special interest groups. It's the labor unions. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to make the case to you today that labor unions' political influence goes right to the top, that Kentaji Brown-Jackson in this case is the nominee because she is the union-favored nominee. This is the most pro-union president we've had. Those are his words. Mm-hmm. Um, during the 2020 election cycle, unions spent $244 million in direct contributions to Joe Biden and $1.8 billion in total political spending. So we're mm-hmm. talking about getting out the vote efforts, um, uncoordinated expenditures, and of course, direct um, campaign contributions as well. R- recall, um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary about Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and about his his confirmation proceedings. Um, what, what was, I think, obvious to a lot of people at the time, but was really explicit in that documentary was that um, the opposition to to T- Justice Thomas's um, confirmation, which ended up including the NAACP, really only got a full a full head of steam after the AFL CIO asked for it. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who directed all of this. Just like that today, um, out of all of the qualified candidates that uh, President Biden could have selected, he happened to select the union favored nominee, and he did it for a very political reason. And you're saying that the political reason is because unions are the most powerful political force driving both parties or driving the Democrats or? Driving the Democrats in particular, um, but they've been a powerful player in even with Republicans as well. A good friend of mine says that they'll rent a Republican until they can buy a Democrat. Um, What they've done, they've read Kintaji Brown-Jackson's opinions. Mm -hmm. She's out there about this stuff. At best, She's got a profound misunderstanding of public sector labor law that tilts towards the unions. Uh, at worst, she's done some cynical things, uh, political maneuvering in order to get uh, where she's gotten today. And she's impressed the unions along the way. Well, so one of the things that obviously you look at when a judge is going up for this type of position is the work that they've done on cases, so the way that they've ruled, mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. they've sort of shown their jurisprudence. Are there any particular yeah. cases that Judge Jackson has shown she's going to be more pro-union than not? Yeah, here's what got her on the map. Uh, in 2018, President Trump issued three executive orders that were meant to deal with um, longstanding problems with unions in federal uh, in the federal government. Um, you you probably know this, but there are th- three million federal employees, a vast administrative state, mm-hmm. and unions ha- get a cut of that action. Mm-hmm. They were invited into the federal government um, by uh, by uh, Kennedy back in the '60s, and they've been there ever since. Um, they've sort of their role has metastasized. They've used their power and influence as unions um, in the federal government to get more. Um, many times direct spending from the federal government. But in 2018, Trump meant to deal with that by issuing three executive orders. Um, Just a month later, 17 separate federal employee unions filed four separate lawsuits, and they all ended up in front of 
Kentaji Brown Jackson. Kentaji Brown Jackson. Interesting. Yeah. And the way that she ruled in those cases indicated that she was more in favor of the unions than the Trump administration. She um, she wrote a 120 something page tome about federal um, labor law that includes a lot of uh, I, 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 I can go into detail on that decision, but I'll, I'll say a few things. It displayed a really flawed view of collective bargaining that was tilted in favor of unions There's a misunderstanding of the role of the president in dealing with unions and with his own workforce. Uh, it assumes that the health of the unions derives from getting free stuff from the government. And even worse, um, she saw in that 120-page document a uh, real value in unions being politically active, uh, lobbying, for instance, on behalf of federal employees at the same time they're sitting across the bargaining table mm. from the very people that they're lobbying. Um, so she's also got a philosophy that I think came out, but those are the profound flaws that, in, in my view, attracted the attention of the labor unions, mm. put her on the map, and then made her the favored candidate. Now, later on, she would go, she would go on to become a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court, mm. and she wrote two opinions at the D.C. Circuit. One of them dealt with federal sector labor law and happened to involve one of the same parties that had filed the suit initially. Um, her profound misunderstanding was just repeated in that case on a broader scale. Um, and I can go into detail on that one if you're interested. I guess what I'm curious about is, was her 100-page opinion out of the ordinary? Was that sort of large, profound amount of text regarding a case mm -hmm. all that out of the ordinary? Or was this just like a very complicated case that she it, needed to do that? It, it was a complicated case, no doubt. And I mentioned 17 federal sector unions involved in the thing, um, three executive orders that were were varying levels of complexity. But uh, on the other hand, I think uh, the, the style of writing that she employed and the length, the breadth of things that she took on in that document, it was sort of like a showcase for mm. the unions. It put her on the map and made her a viable candidate. Okay. So I think before we get a little too deep into the weeds here, one of the concepts that you've mentioned a little bit is collective bargaining and these ideas that unions have this right to do that. Mm -hmm. What is that? What is collective bargaining? Okay. Um, when when uh, Let's start here. Um, federal employees, let's talk about that process. Federal employees have been unionized since, I mentioned, since uh, Kennedy uh, back in the 60s. At that time, it was somewhat of a free-for-all. And this is how unionization started in general, mm. but we'll talk just about federal sector. Um, sort of a free-for-all. And uh, starting with Kennedy and then with Nixon, there were all sorts of executive orders that would sort of allow unions to come in and then tell them what they could and couldn't bargain over, how the agencies were going to approach them. But that really became a statutory process when Congress got involved. Mm. They passed a couple of different uh, uh, federal sector labor laws that would formalize this process, codify it. And I think in general that was probably a good move. Um, it took what, what could have been a, um, uh, just another one of these things that swings back and forth with presidents into something a little bit more stable. Mm. Now I'll tell you that's become unmoored somewhat, and this thing also goes back and forth these right. days. But it was probably a good move, and what um, what it asked uh, the federal government to do is to balance two things: one, the right of, of federal employees to organize, mm -hmm. with the right of the government, the need for the government to run an effective and a fair and efficient um, uh, uh, business. Right, right. Better term, and um, 
in my role, I, 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 uh, President Trump appointed me to a panel called the Federal Service Impasses Panel. Uh, one of the mechanisms that was, uh, that was created in these statutes to deal with the inevitable conflict that would happen between agencies and unions. Now, what Kentaji Brown-Jackson thinks about this process is that the, the, uh, the contest between an agency and a union is sort of like a, um, a football game. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that the conflict that goes on between these two sides would somehow produce the best result. That's mm-hmm. what she thinks. Now, in fact, what we've seen over time, it's been decades now, what we've seen over time is that uh, labor law has been tilted in favor of unions. So mm-hmm. that, for instance, when when an employer and a union go to arbitration, an arbitrator more or less splits the baby. And by splitting the baby, they've only encouraged the union to ask for more because mm. at the very least, the union's going to get about half of what it asked for. Um, so unions sit across the bargaining table and make these outrageous demands. Okay, so stop there. Mm. One big difference between um, private sector labor and public sector labor is that when unions are sitting across this bargaining table and making these outrageous demands, in the private sector, they're making those demands of a an employer who's trying to run a business, and if they go out of business or have to move overseas, all of the uh, all of the employees are out of out of their jobs, and then the private sector union leaders have really messed up. Mm-hmm. In the public sector, on the other hand, these public sector union officials are sitting across from a government that never goes out of business, right. never goes out of business. There's always more to extract. Not only that, but they've also got this incentive to do rent-seeking, to get involved politically so that the people sitting across the bargaining table owe the unions some sort of you know, payoff. Mm-hmm. So they do it all the time. I think at the lowest level, a school district where school boards run for office, uh, teachers unions are very, very involved in the school board campaigns. Mm-hmm. And if they can get the school board that they want on the other side of the bargaining table, then they will get all of those outrageous demands without even having to go to arbitration. Mm-hmm. So public sector labor law can be fundamentally broken depending on how one administers it. Uh, uh, um, FDR thought that public sector unionization, for instance, was just out of the question, that, um, that it was fundamentally different from, from private sector labor law. Well, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, I told you, sort of sees this thing as a football field. Um, she actually appears to, from, from her writings, appears to view that football game as one in which the referee should continue to get involved until there's a tie ball game or until the unions win. She seems to think that it's intolerable that the government, in this case the employer, could somehow um, work among different agencies, get a better coach, whatever it is, and then end up winning that ball game. And Mm. unfortunately, that means that we don't really get the result that we wanted at the end of the ball game. We get a tie. Right, right. And so we're not looking for a tie. We're looking for something else. We're looking for a better result that doesn't result in both parties kind of splitting it, right? Well, listen, that, that balancing act that, that Congress asked mm-hmm. the federal government to engage in, um, remember the, the right of, of employees to organize versus the uh, ability for the government to run an efficient and a fair uh, government, then uh, sometimes that results in an imbalance. And it depends a little bit, it should depend 
on the facts on the ground. So mm-hmm. when people go to uh, if if employee if employees are properly represented, some hopefully they're going to have a manager who respects them and gives them the value that they should get as employees. Unless there's no value. Mm-hmm. And then the employer might should have the flexibility to either pay them less um, to ask bad employees to leave. Mm-hmm. And Kintaji Brown-Jackson, in that opinion, made it very clear that she wants the government to have no such flexibility. So then what are the consequences if Kintaji Brown-Jackson is confirmed to the court? It seems like she would have a lot more power and influence on the Supreme Court than she would on the D.C. Circuit. Oh, yeah. Court. I, and so I've read a lot of, of stuff that says the ideological balance of the court will, is not going to change. Mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, people think that there's a 6-3 split. And then she's basically taking the um, the place of a judge for whom she clerked, Breyer. Mm. Byron, Wizard White, the football player turned uh, Supreme Court justice, said that every time a new Supreme Court justice gets on the court, the court changes. Mm. And I think that's what we're going to see. Um, uh, in my view, it appears that Justice Alito had some particular views with respect to public sector unionization that ended up getting worked out through a series of decisions. Uh, starting in 2012 and ending in 2018 with a case called Janus versus AFSCME. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he drove the court on that because he understood the First Amendment, mm. right? not for a nefarious reason, but because he had a particular judicial philosophy. Even taking um, Kintaji Brown-Jackson at her best, she's got new judicial philosophies. She's got her own view on the First Amendment and how it should work. She's definitely got her own perspective on how federal sector bargaining should work. Mm-hmm. And she's going to bring that to the court. And she may drive some of these issues. I think unions are getting what they're paying for. So you think that even though, you know, as we've mentioned, there is an ideological difference on the court that would make it more difficult for sort of sweeping mm-hmm. liberal positions to get passed, there will still be an impact by her nature on the court. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't know what happens behind those uh, those closed door steering conference, but um, it, it certainly looks like a judge has room within that context to drive towards certain things that they believe should be uh, reflected in the majority decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you served as a presidential appointee to the Federal Service Impasses mm-hmm. Panel during the Trump administration. What were some of the things that you handled while you were in that position? The Impasses Panel is supposed to resolve conflicts. Um, when they've reached an impasse. So when you've got this this bargaining thing happening, uh, unions are sitting across the bargaining table from the agency, uh, there are going to be some sticking points and neither side wants to move. Mm-hmm. It's called an impasse. Uh, historically, that's been a very bad result from collective bargaining. You may remember when President Reagan had to stand up to the uh, air traffic controllers. Right. The air traffic controllers decided they were going to go on strike, and he said, oh, "We're going to have to move on without you." This panel, I, I think, I think it's fair to say that this panel was designed so that we don't have to get into that situation again. Mm. So that uh, this panel has extraordinary authority to re to to help people reach impasse, to sit down with the parties, um, and then if all else fails, to actually impose written terms and conditions on the party so that they can move forward with their lives. And we think that maybe if Ketanji Brown-Jackson were to be confirmed to the Supreme Court, we would see less of an impact from that because in her mind, you wouldn't need that because it's always the fault of the government. It's never the fault of the public sector union. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I've thought too hard about what um, decisions might, how those decisions might affect 
indirectly the, the Federal Service Impasses Panel. The decision I told you about, the 120-page thing, I, I was particularly clued into that because it had everything to do with the work at the Federal Service Impasses Panel. Mm. Um, but her decision at the D.C. Circuit Court might be a better example. There she held that, uh, along with a, a, a panel of judges, that the government had to engage in collective bargaining whenever there's more of a de minimis impact on terms and conditions of employment for employees. So here's a couple of examples. An employee uh, gets moved from his window seat to another part of the office. Mm. Um, she, her decision and uh, the de minimis standard would require that the union and the employer sit down, require that they mm-hmm. sit down and negotiate that move. Okay. Highly inefficient. Um the, the FLRA, which is sort of like the NLRB for federal employees, tried to make a change in this, and she stopped them from doing that. Um, that would mean that there's a lot more bargaining over very small issues and a lot more opportunity, unfortunately, to reach impasse. So mm-hmm. I could see the Federal Service Impasses Panel actually being flooded with new requests for help you know, breaching, uh, figuring out how to, how to get past this impasse. Interesting. As we wrap up, I'm curious if – as we're watching these these confirmation hearings on TV and as we're sort of pondering whether or not she's going to be a very pro-union justice on the court, can ordinary Americans actually do anything to sort of mitigate the worst consequences of a potential confirmation to the Supreme Court? The, the My organization cares a lot about people. So mm-hmm. Americans for Fair Treatment – um, is uh, educates public employees as to their First Amendment rights in particular, and it also empowers them to act in response and in defense of those rights. So um, if you are a federal employee, um, you can decide today to stop paying union dues. You can leave your union, withdraw your membership. Uh, we have tools to help you do that. If, um, if you want more rights within your workplace and you're dissatisfied with your union, we've helped uh, public employees exercise their constitutional and statutory rights to replace your union mm. or to create a new local-only union um, uh, instead. And um, these if, – if you're not a public employee and you're sort of on the outside, your awareness of these issues um, when you're voting, um, when you're paying your taxes – makes all the difference in the world. What very few people realize is how powerful these unions are from the bottom all the way to the top, the stuff that we've been talking about today. Excellent. That was David Osborne, CEO of Americans for Fair Treatment, a national nonprofit that works to educate public sector employees about their constitutional rights around union membership. David, very much appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Doug. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And please subscribe and encourage others to do so. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.